0: Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here I sit down and talk with some of the best photographers, writers, editors, designers and publishers working in the visual arts. These conversations will give you an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. And it is a chance to hear their story and personal journey in a rapidly changing, highly competitive, but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and have learned so much from spending time with them, not just working together on projects, but having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, sourcing exciting projects, sharing skills through partnerships and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these stories with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Our guest today is Jasper Doost. Jasper is a multi-award winning photographer based in the Netherlands. He began photographing at an early age after numerous outdoor trips with his parents who were keen hikers and nature lovers. He studied biology to gain a better understanding of the subjects he wanted to photograph and at the age of 20 he tried his luck in a Dutch photography competition, entering the professional award as an amateur and duly won it. Fast forward nearly 20 years and Jasper's images have been published worldwide in Geo, Smithsonian and National Geographic magazines, and his photo stories have been awarded recently in the World Press Photo Awards and the Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Through his photographic work, Jasper gives a voice to the natural world and tries to bridge the gap between nature and us. And this is evident in an 11-year project photographing snow monkeys in Japan and studying their complex relationships with people and more recently, charismatic shots of the now famous Caribbean flamingo named Bob. Jasper believes in the power of photography to initiate change. He is a senior fellow of the International League of Conservation Photographers and a Dutch World Wildlife Fund ambassador. In this podcast, Jasper gives us an insight into his working process and how his photography has evolved over the years from taking single images to telling powerful stories by investing plenty of time and energy to gain access and build relationships. This is something he believes makes his images stronger and to tell a coherent story. Above all, Jasper is a really warm guy and great to spend time with and talk to. I caught up with him in South Kensington on the eve of the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards. Welcome to London. Thank you. Yes. Nice to be back. Lovely to see you here. And you just got in this morning from Holland.
1: Yes. Uh, direct flight from Rotterdam, which was
0: quite convenient. <laughs> Excellent. And um, I don't know I always find with those short flights, somehow they're worse than long haul because you're just up and down. You do all the security. And I remember always feeling kind of sick with those. Whereas with long haul, at least you kind of know and you can get into it. And. I don't know, that's well, my you, you, experience.
1: With the with long haul flight, you have time to just sit back and relax. And with the short flight, you just stay in the same rhythm, um, which is good and bad because I haven't relaxed really <laughs> no. until uh, um, after I arrived. But um, that's all right. I'll make my, I'll find myself uh, uh,
0: sleeping very well. Tonight. Yeah, good. Yeah. And this is exciting because, well, you've got an action packed week here. Yeah, um, for sure. We're, yeah. In, we're in South Kensington now, um, very close to the Natural History Museum. Um, actually, I don't know if I can say that you know you're a winning photographer there. I, mean, I don't
1: know when you're going to <laughs> broadcast it, but I think the Guardian already spoiled it for everybody. Um,
0: That's fine. I mean, this this will be released, you know, after after the awards. All right. Um, then we so can freely talk about it. We can freely it. talk about it. Good. And this is great. You know, you're uh, I'm now a multi award winner in I don't know. I view it as the most prestigious. Uh, nature photography competition. Obviously, there are other good ones. Um, well, yeah, out this there. is this is the one I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. congratulations on that, and Thank I'm you. sure that the listeners, you know, by the time this is out, the exhibition will be up. So I encourage you to go and see Jasper's work and, and and other photographers. But that's not the only reason why you're here. You've got a talk tonight at Imperial College. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Yes, there was actually. Uh, an idea that came through a friend of mine. I think she studies at the Imperial College. And we met last year here at the uh, WPY uh, award ceremony or at the evening after that. And um, prior to uh, this year's wildlife talk of the event, she asked me if I wanted to do a talk at some point um, for her fellow students about conservation, how to use your voice for conservation as a photographer. And um, then I thought it would be great if I would be able to combine the two because now we have not only uh, got the chance to talk to uh, dedicated students in the conservation field, but also a bunch of photographers around that would be interested in the talk. So I thought this would be great timing for, for an event like this and she, uh, organized everything, she's hosting it, so all I have to do is tell my story, so I'm, I'm happy to do so.
0: That's great. You say all you have to do, but, of course, you have to put preparation into these. And yes, do, but do, do you like public speaking? Do you get nervous? Or obviously, it's an important part of being a photographer. It is. Days.
1: It is an important part of what I do. I do get a little bit nervous, of course. Some um, healthy nerves. Yes. Uh, it's more... Yeah, I think it's excitement. Sometimes it's, it's really the nerves, but it depends on the public. Uh, but for this one, I'm mainly excited, and I'm looking forward to see some of my friends again who are going to uh, attend to the event. So
0: that's yeah, it's going to be a nice night. Yeah, and then a nice week because you'll be also at Wildscreen. Yes, uh, come back around again. I met you there two years. Two ago. Two years ago I already. Know it's yes. so fast. Um, but you're there this time in the capacity of a of a judge. Yes. So tell us a bit about that.
1: It was very exciting because most of the um, wildlife photography uh, competitions that we see are focusing mainly on the beauty of wildlife, uh, and I've focused on single imagery, which um, is a completely different language, I think, than um, working in a series, in a story with a full uh, narrative. And this competition. Uh, that Wildscreen is hosting, is focusing only on storytelling, mm-hmm. both in single images, mm-hmm. as well as in, um, in series, but it's, um, yeah, it's mainly the series that, that count, yeah. and um, it's interesting to get such a wide variety of entries. Yeah. Um, and I, I was very excited to be part of, the, of this year's first edition.
0: That's great, and how, so how does it work? that you get sent all the, all, all the entries, or are you now, while you're in Bristol? I mean, are there other judges that judge the first round? Do you then just get, uh, do you then judge the selection that has been selected? How does that work?
1: Um, I think it's always good if the judging panel is also part of the pre judging. Yes. So I was very happy to see that we were sent all the entries. Wow, okay. Uh, which, of course, were less than a competition like Wildlife Talk sure. of the Year. So it's a new competition. A, yeah, it's a new well. competition and it's story focused. So people who don't find themselves working in the, in the storytelling uh, part of, of wildlife photography, they wouldn't enter. So yeah. there were less entries than wildlife photography of the year, but nevertheless, they were very good. And I, um, we went through, every uh, jury member went through all of them, and we got together in, whew, I think in early August right. in Bristol. Okay. Uh, for a day um, of judging. Uh, judging the the f- final yeah and then we came up with a winner that we're all very excited about oh, so How um, was, was it
0: were there battles you know obviously you've got lots of serious people involved and lots of opinion and, and that's what makes it, f- it fun as well yes yeah. well it's, it's always exciting to be
1: around uh, well-respected colleagues and and discuss about photography and and Uh, For instance, last year I was a jury in Wildlife Talk of the Year, and the the main discussion that we had in the end was not about the picture quality, but it was what does Wildlife Talk of the the Year stand for? What do we want Wildlife Talk of the Year to talk about? Sure. Uh, Are we going to look at aesthetics only? Is that the most important thing of a photo competition? Or is it the content that is driving the competition? And in an ideal situation, it's both. Sure. But um, we don't live in an ideal world, I think. So uh, that often uh, is food for debate. Yes. And that was the same kind of discussion we had during this year's Wild Screen uh, competition. Especially since this is the first edition, you have to, to set the bar. Of course. Yeah. And um, that was the main discussion, really. What, as a as a judging panel, what do we think Wild Screen? Um, stands for
0: yes well I'm really excited I'll be there as well and uh, cool. hopefully we can meet up there again next week there's lots yes, of yes for sure and also what's good for us you know photographers obviously it's primarily a film festival but they've added an extra photo day which yes is nice. that's so really nice we're being put back on the map after they sadly closed wild photos that they used to do here in yes Kensington. I think
1: I think that's still being missed but I yeah. I hope that uh, throughout the years wild screen is able to fill that gap
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So I wanted to come back, you know, just to talk about you and um, you know one of the early things on my list and questions I wanted to ask you was exactly that about storytelling with pictures. And there's now a theme in the photographers that I've interviewed in these podcasts that how just how important that is. You know, it's no longer really are you going to get as much attention just by trying to take single you know beautiful images. And is this something that's evolved? with your photography over the years or did you find yourself right from the start wanting to tell stories with your pictures?
1: Maybe I wanted that but I didn't know it. (laughs) Um, No I started as a single picture taker. Um, It was really uh, my editor at National Geographic who kept asking me Jasper, it's lovely work but what's the story? Mm. And I, I, I really didn't understand it because I, uh, first of all, I couldn't answer the question. Um, if you take my series of Japanese macaques, uh, the monkeys that are known to bathe in hot springs in, in Japan. Um, they're cool monkeys. Um, hmm. People should have respect for them. Uh, they're beautiful and that's what I try to emphasize throughout my work but I didn't really had a story to tell mm-hmm. about them other than the natural history part, uh, how they live. But uh, other than that, there was no story really. Yeah. And it was that question that kept triggering me and um, made me wonder like, what, what does she mean? What's the story? And I, um, I'm not a native speaker to the English uh, language. So when she mentions words like a narrative and, mm-hmm. and you have to search your visual voice, I actually had no clue what she was talking <laughs> about. I, I remember the first time she said, uh, "Jasper, you have to look for your v- visual voice," and, and she came up with the word narrative. I just nodded, and afterwards I looked it up in a dic- dictionary, <laughs> and it just mentioned something like storyline. And I thought, well, there is a certain flow in my images. From if you if I put them in order, there's there's a flow. So what what else should <laughs> I add? Um, So I had no clue what I was doing in terms of storytelling, and it wasn't until I did a um, social documentary workshop in Missouri, Uh in the US, um, that I finally started to understand the craft of of building a narrative, and and how you can um, still talk about the importance of animals, um, but through different ways. Um, What do you mean? For example, Um, I can talk about an animal very far away, which is very difficult for you as as the public to connect with. And I I can try really hard by making the animal look beautiful and cute, but still it's something happening very far away. If I would tell a story about a person trying to work really hard in order to protect it and focus on the human side of it, all of a sudden we have a human being that you can connect with. And uh, through that dedication of the person and the threats that the animal is facing, all of a sudden you're able to to really care about that situation. And for me, it brings the whole thing to another level and makes it come more alive. Yes. It's, it's easier to connect, unfortunately, it's it's easier to connect to people through people than uh, through these beautiful animals themselves. Yeah.
0: And I think that's a trend that's, well, it's been going on for a long time now, but I remember when I first started doing nature photography and, you know, particularly in in the wildlife photography competition, you'd often see images, you know, of beautiful nature or there was, you know, they had the wild places category and stunning landscape pictures, but no people in. And I think a lot of people going there could think, oh, this must be somewhere I'd never be able to access. And that's definitely changed. I mean, I know, you know, I've been with Nature Picture Library for years now and... Um, images that are selling more and more these days are images of people in the picture and I think people need that connection in order to engage with it.
1: And I think more and more in a world where we are separating ourselves from the natural world, there's actually a lot of people who don't understand why we need nature and I think these uh, images of dedicated people who really will give up their own lives sometimes in order to uh, tell something or help another animal. Mm. Um, they're they're very important in order to to make that connection happen yes. again.
0: yeah, and going back to you know the snow monkey story, I mean, you've got so many great stories if you, you have to we'll put your website and and Instagram and everything in in the notes afterwards, and I'm going to encourage people to go there because I like the way your website is laid out with just these simple. You know, headlines of all your stories and you know trying to cover them all is going to be difficult T- took some time to, <laughs> yeah. to,
1: to finally understand what i wanted with the website i'm quite happy with it, it looks really nice
0: it's very clean and i i think it's lovely that what i find anyway the no words you know the pictures really do tell the stories and i know that you know your snow monkey project you've got a lot of mileage with that and it's been going on yes. and and it continues to go on i, I learned recently that that was. At a 10, 11-year project that's still not finished. <laughs> I started 11 years ago. Yeah, wow, yes. it's incredible. And one of the things I was really interested in asking you was, you know, you talking about going there to a place where this animal is so well photographed, you know, why did you do this? You know, this is a this is a real challenge. Is, it's a bit like, you know, now if you were thinking of doing a new project, maybe going to India and doing tigers or yes. Africa and doing lions, everybody's doing them. So what made you want to, to do a subject that's really well photographed?
1: It sounds really arrogant if I say I just thought I could do better, right? <laughs> no, I I first of all, I saw these monkeys on a BBC documentary years ago, and I just thought wow, I really want to see this with my own eyes. I was still a student back then, so I didn't have a lot of money to spend. And I just thought it would be good to look for an accessible subject because um, you can look for rarities and sit in your blind for hours and then take that single beautiful telephoto frame. Um, But the second frame that you will take or the next frame uh, will actually look quite similar, because you're still in that same blind, you're using the same telephoto lens, so it's very difficult to show diversity in mm-hmm. your images. And I really like to work with common subjects or, or subjects that allow me to work in close proximity mm-hmm. to the animal, uh, because then I can walk around freely, I can diversify my work, I can show different angles of their lives, and that was one of the reasons why I chose to visit the snow monkeys, because I knew I was able to do that. And um, after the first visit, which was a week in March, which was quite late in the season, and uh, we hardly uh, got any snow, we got lucky one day, and we got the, to see the potential, just right. that one, one single day where we got 30 centimeters of snow. And I wasn't really satisfied with the work, I, I got to see the potential and I thought, well, I, if I ever have money again, I will go back and I will yeah, see if I can you know, know, improve it.
0: Living in, in Holland, that's not an easy place or a cheap place A to get to and B no. to live in.
1: I've, I've, um, well, it's not too expensive anymore now that I got, really got to know Japan. So yeah. now I know my way and right. I know the local way. But uh, the touristic way is really expensive. Sure. And uh, yeah, for sure, that back then when I was a student, it, it took me, I think, two more years until I could go back. Um, and then I noticed that the images that I was getting were actually different from the ones sure. that um, that I had seen in the media before. Sure. Because I think it's with, with any place that has great access, if it's simple, people just don't go all the way because they go for the stuff that's uh, easy to grab on the surface. And why would you dive in deep? Because within an hour, if you go to that snow monkey place in the right season, within an hour you have a frame-filling shot of a, of, of a snow monkey grooming another monkey in that hot spring. Yes. So it's not difficult, but that's where it all ended. Most photographers stay there for one day as they're going to Hokkaido or other areas of Japan. Nobody was spending time with the monkeys. So that's uh, when I decided to set up photo tours that instead of going to snow monkey country, and after that, go to Hokkaido to see the eagles and the cranes and all the beauty up there. Just do six days of monkeys. That's it. And luckily enough, uh, people got interested yeah. because they wanted to see the monkeys and or were afraid of flying. Uh, whatever the reason was, I, I've had multiple people joining for multiple reasons. But I thought it was great to see people getting bored with the animal after yeah. a couple of days, thinking they had it all, sure. and then going to going through all that in order to uh, raise the bar again. Yes. And that's what I've done for myself during those tours too.
0: Great, um, so was this how you essentially funded your own trips, yes. was, was running tours? Yes, that's how it started. Places. I, st- that's brilliant.
1: I stopped with that, I think, 2014 or 13. Um, and after that, I just kept going back myself to yeah. finish the work. but. Uh, that's how I how I started. Yeah, going but back you every finished year. oh well, I'm finished now. <laughs> you um, finished now. I can oh. officially say oh, wow. uh, the story is finished. <laughs> um, I, of course, I'll go back. Yes. Because um, I will still go back to Japan uh, hosting trips for National Geographic. Okay. And I still have another reason for going back to Japan, uh, as as I might have a new story that I want want to look into. So I will go back and revisit the place. But um, story wise, it's kind of finished
0: now. Yeah. yeah. And how are you with that? You know, for something that's like so long, and of course you'll go back because, you know, after 10 years you must make good friends, good connections. Yes for sure. Um, but ending long-term projects is something that must be difficult. Like, how do you decide, you know, <laughs> this, is a, this is the end? That's a good question. In the beginning, I remember
1: when, with this project I finished prior to the monkeys, uh, my white stalks I had great difficulties finishing it, maybe because I wasn't satisfied yet, but I just had to take my hands off uh, but with the monkeys, I'm happy with mm-hmm. the story as it is. I think the pictures together tell the story I want to em uh, put emphasis on yeah and I also learned that um, at some point you need to move to another subject mm-hmm. so um, yeah i'm i'm, I'm fully satisfied, I will miss going to these places. So like you said, I will still visit every now and then because you've, you've made friends. And with the monkeys, uh, like the, the snow monkeys, although I haven't really worked that particular location for two years now, I still love going back and, and see the different individuals because you get to know the monkey truth on an individual basis. Yeah. So there's one monkey in particular who's now 27 Wow! who I've known for the last 11 years Amazing. and I've seen her aging and I've seen her becoming a grandparent or she, she probably was a grandparent already 11 years ago but you see her getting older and you see the relationship now with her uh, beloved ones and it's, it's, it becomes way more intimate than just looking at a group of monkeys. Yeah,
0: that's lovely, that's so nice and you mentioned the, the stork story so again yes. it's another another story on your website I encourage listeners to go and have a look it's re- really beautiful and we had a bit of a conversation about this earlier and I think one of the key things that stood out for me was um, you know gaining access I mean first of all you should just tell tell us a little bit about that yeah. story and what your aim was but the importance of of access in, in in trying to get good pictures I think it's another let's see I started
1: in two thousand nine I think but but let's go back to the beginning I, th- I think The stork has been a special bird for me uh, ever since I was a child, and I think that's caused mainly because um, when I grew up, I was born in 1979, when I grew up, uh, just years before that there were only two individual storks left in the Netherlands. Wow. So they were on the brink of extinction, and there was this big conservation effort going on in order to save the stalk from going to extinction. The main reason was uh, DDT was Mm -hmm. causing problems in the nesting areas and also in the migratory grounds in Africa. Um, And they were able to do that and there was, I think still today, one of the biggest successes in conservation in, in the Netherlands. So when I saw, uh, when I would see storks as a child, it was very exciting because you wouldn't see them every day. You know, tall birds, and especially as a child, they, they, they really stand out. Um, so I had a project that didn't really succeed before that and I thought, okay, now if I want to make a living as a photographer, I really have to choose something wisely. <laughs> and I thought the, the, the wise decision, decision was looking at alternative markets, and I thought, well, if I would have to think of one particular bird that everybody knows on the whole planet, which is actually fascinating, because in the US you don't have white storks, yet people know about the mythical stories of storks bringing babies. Sure. Um, same for Japan. Um, so if worldwide, from the age of three up to 99, people are familiar with white storks. You, you don't yes. have them in the UK, no. do you? No. But, but people know the, the relationship with babies and things like that. So I thought, well, if my project fails, then still there's a market for these images. I'm just going to follow the natural history of this bird. And um, in the beginning, it was very boring, I remember. <laughs> um, because they, they nest on these really high wooden poles, yeah. uh, which are a result of that whole conservation effort, providing uh, better nesting locations Great. in this modern landscape. And I was standing underneath a pole, and they stand there, standing tall on one single leg, for hours.
0: <laughs> not doing anything. Not doing Didn't anything. No behavior, yeah. and,
1: I, and I was thinking, why did I choose this subject? <laughs> this is just stupid. But I, I persisted, I don't know why, um, and then I decided to go to Poland, because on another trip, I noticed uh, a nest being on eye level in a backyard of a, a Polish hostel where I stayed in uh, yeah. earlier. And um, I just decided to have a look uh, there uh, at, at eye level, and then I fell in love with with the small details. And um, I just kept following natural history, started following the, the birds throughout Europe, and then and now we get back to what you wanted to talk about, getting Mm axes. I found them on um, enormous landfills in Southern Europe and um, not single birds, but thousands of them, uh, which was the most stunning thing I had ever seen as a photographer visually. It was just mind boggling. And I remember walking into that particular landfill um, without my camera because I wanted to do it the polite way. And mm-hmm. I thought I can walk in here with my camera starting to take pictures without any access. Yeah. But then they kicked me out, sure. I might not have the picture and I will never get back in. So let's leave the camera inside the car. And I walked into the landfill, I talked to some guy and he said, you need uh, uh, permission. I don't speak any Spanish. <laughs> and he didn't speak any English, but he said something like, permission, <laughs> and I thought, well, this is, I need, I need permission, so I said, ¿Dónde está la permision? And then he said uh, that, I, that I had to go downtown to their office. Okay. So I went there, oh. and again, I didn't speak Spanish, and they didn't speak English, so we, we couldn't uh, talk with each other, and I couldn't explain why I wanted access, and they couldn't explain why I, they didn't want to give me access. So I went home empty handed and I remember I cried for half an hour in the car because it felt like I had, I had the chance to really be the voice for these animals and, to, and it, I felt it was my responsibility to, to use that voice and I couldn't. Uh, I was shut down and then I worked for two years uh, with building a whole network in Spain um, and, and writing official letters to the Spanish. government. No, I could
0: have done that. Might have been faster. I know you're uh, telling you're telling me the story, and I'm thinking you're not really making life easy for yourself. You know, what about you know doing you know slugs in your back garden or you know something that's accessible, close no, to home. No, this um, well, as as soon as I got access, uh,
1: two years later, through a friend of mine who has been a great help in this project. And uh, as soon as I got access, we were actually on a family holiday in Sweden, which was about to end. So I didn't end the holiday because of my story, but uh, I drove back from Sweden 15 hours back to Rotterdam, dropped off my wife and my uh, one-year-old daughter. And then I continued for another 20 hours. (laughs) And when I arrived at the location, there were thousands of stalks, the light was great. And I get a phone call saying, Jasper, I'm terribly sorry. We have governmental permission, but we don't have access to that actual site because it's privately owned. I'm terribly sorry. Um, You could see
0: it in great light. I was there.
1: I was there after driving for 35 hours. Uh, So I got very angry and very upset, uh, which was not appropriate because he only tried to help me. And then he said, well, please come to southern Spain and um, stay as long as you can, because I will, while working, I will still try to get access for you. So I booked a hotel for two weeks, and...
0: um, Not knowing you were gonna get access? No,
1: and every day, I would check my email, and you would say, no, sorry, no, sorry, no, sorry. Every single day, until, at one point, he said, we might have access, wow. but you have to write something very quickly now. And then, that's when we got our first access. And that's it felt amazing. like it was the last day of my life. I really had to do it. I couldn't make any mistakes,
0: which I did. But um, but that's, that's such a great story. Not, I mean, not only do we, you know you hear over and over again how you have to persevere to get the images, but this is a real story of perseverance and just getting access even before you've taken a single picture.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it, it felt stupid at the time. And I, I remember... At one point, I just decided to hire planes and helicopters in order to get aerial views without access. And after the first flight that I did, uh, which was 1500 Euro for uh, a one hour flight, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I didn't get it, I saw the potential. I I saw the shot that I wanted, but I didn't get it. So I remember calling my wife saying, okay, I'm at the end of my bank account right now. what sh- should i do and she only said you know what you have to do right
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, i'm very thankful for that because the next day i did another hour and then i got it and that th- these little these these single pictures they give so much hope that that first time getting access um, although it felt like my only chance it also planted the seed of mm-hmm. hope mm-hmm. and you just keep going because as as long as you see that seed uh being there there's a chance of it blossoming and, yeah. um that i don't have any difficulties holding on to these little yeah. things i think that's part of my personality part of your nature, to
0: be like incredibly tenacious and i think yeah, so yes you get the like we say the bit between the teeth and it seems like nothing would stop you <laughs> <laughs> at some point you sometimes you have to give up but, but here the, uh, i couldn't yeah yeah that's wonderful um, When I met you two years ago, one of the things that I I really liked about your presentation was it was kind of unusual. You know, most people were there talking. Some people have music, you know, in in, in the background, but you played with live music with a guitarist. Yeah, and And the island story. Yeah, still very
1: close to my heart. And that's
0: lovely because that's something that's also not too far from where you live either, right?
1: No, well, it's on the other side of the country, but I, I live in the Netherlands being a very small country, so it's... Yeah, it feels like you're talking about something at home that your sure. neighbors would actually understand.
0: And how did that project start? And I'm assuming or hoping that you didn't have the same issues getting access.
1: No, although access would have been a, a great issue if I would have uh, initiated the project myself because yeah. it's, um, the island is called Oog, uh-huh. Um which is part of the uh, West Frisian Islands in the north of our country and it's an uninhabited island, um, a protected nature reserve by European laws, so it's, it's difficult to get access to the actual site and work there for multiple days. I was lucky that I was being asked by Dutch National Geographic magazine to um, do a story about the island, and it g- gave me complete freedom, because yeah. the first question was, do you, um, uh, National Geographic magazine had their anniversary year, uh, they wanted to do something special that only they could do and they made all the arrangements and okay. then they contacted that me really helps, that really help <laughs> and um, they asked me to do the four seasons of the island right and I said I want to do a story about the island but the four seasons sounds very lame because mm-hmm. you can do the four seasons about anything you can sure. do the, south, the 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 four seasons about the Natural History Museum about sure anything so I I wanted to find out what the story was really about and they let me do that. Yeah. And um, they gave me a deadline of a year and they gave me a budget and I could use the budget whatever way I wanted to but there was no, uh, I couldn't stretch it. Sure. So I could just go four days, yeah. just four days in a year and just do it and then um, make a lot of money per day or I could just <laughs> dive in because it's a special location. Yeah and uh, uh, that's
0: something that I'm interested in and I think a lot of people mm-hmm. you know listening are interested in you know reaching the level of be- being a National Geographic photographer which so many photographers want to get to and you know the detail of that yeah. in the beginning you know how did you get there what had you done you know in order to sort of you know wave okay. the flag like I'm, I'm here National Geographic you know I'm, I'm a good Dutch photographer and I've done this stuff, you know, how did you, you know, get that access? I think here in the UK
1: it's a little bit more difficult than in the Netherlands because you've got to know that there are 30 by heart, 37 different language editions of the magazine, mm-hmm. which of course the main magazine is in the US in, in Washington. Um, so when I met my editor um, at the main magazine years ago she said try to get in with the Dutch magazine first because it would be a great practice. Yes. Here in the UK I don't think there's a UK version so you have to step right in 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 Washington. I got really lucky that there was um, a Dutch edition that actually had budget because if I look at the Portuguese edition for instance they Get paid 700 euro for a full feature, which is wow. insane. Yeah. Uh, so I was working at an edition that actually had the budget to assign me yeah. stories, and it was uh, payment was okay, but the way of working is quite different. So yeah. um, budget-wise, um, the Dutch edition works completely different um, than the, um, uh, than the U.S. edition, not only in the amount of the budget, the, the size of the budget, but uh, also the, the, the freedom in how you use that budget yeah. is different. Um, so I, here with the Dutch Edition, I just send an email to one of the editors saying, yeah. hey, this is me. Uh, would you be interested in collaboration? And they said, well, you do great stuff, but I don't think you can tell stories. Right. Which I didn't understand, going back yes. to what I said earlier. <laughs> so I said, well, maybe we can try. Um, and then he said, well, I don't think you can do that. Mm-hmm. And um, we, then they published a portfolio of Arctic foxes that I had done earlier just as a, as a nice series. Mm-hmm. So I built a relationship with them and um, then all of a sudden I get, uh, got a phone call if I wanted to do a, a story for them and they were looking for somebody in the nature scene because mm. they were reintroducing bison in the Netherlands, European right. bison. right. And he thought I would be a good fit and he wanted to try if I could tell stories. So that's how I started there. Um, And in the meantime, I've stayed in touch with the editor in the US. Yeah, sure. Um, But yeah, going back to the island, um, that was, I had already
0: done three or four stories for them. um, So they knew what I was able to deliver. And did you move it from, how did you you convince them to move it from this Four Seasons idea?
1: Um, I mentioned it after the first visit uh, I remember talking to the editor-in-chief who just retired last last week and we uh, we came up, we were talking and this story came up again. Um, we were on the phone and he asked me um, what my visit was like <laughs> and what, what I did see. So I told him it was totally amazing and he said, what was there and I said, nothing. <laughs> and he didn't understand and he was getting a little bit nervous and I said, well, I think the story should be about solitude, what it's like right. to be in such a pristine place that's so close to the origin of nature while being surrounded by one of the most densely populated countries in the world. And that's uh, what I started to explore during my visits later. And in in the end I spent 50 days on the island. In total? Yes, instead of four. Um, which so financially your day rate got lower, yes. and lower yeah, yeah, for sure. Visibility. So, financially, there wasn't a smart move. But I, I think for me as a human being, it was one of the most intense um, ways to reconnect with myself and with um, because you with were there nature. completely alone. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, amazing. That sounds so and nice. And in the
1: end, I started bringing friends and, and to assist me because I wanted some crazy things that I couldn't do alone physically,
0: yeah. like what
1: uh, I wanted to take different angles so I had to walk with ladders over the mud sure. flats and um, also because of safety I needed some, some yeah. guidance. Um, so then they did the last part I have I've finished with help but other than that I spent most of my time alone and there was um, a very intense uh, assignment and when I was asked to do a presentation about that I didn't want to give a presentation talking about photography, I thought it was totally unimportant and I wanted to take people out of their seats and Mm. put them right there on the island. And I think we succeeded by by creating that presentation.
0: That was, yeah, that was such a lovely way of doing it. I mean, I remember it really well Well, two years ago. Yeah, it was great. I hope to see more of that kind of thing in the
1: future. Well, we'll, we'll, um, we're we're still working on, on Trying to to get it into the living room. Yeah. So that's something for the near future, hopefully. Great. Um, that's yeah. Awesome. Fingers crossed.
0: <laughs> and we're going to slowly come to an end. You've got this presentation to prepare for. Yes. But I need to always, iron a shirt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always interested. Um, you know, let's go go way back. Um, you know, you talked about some of the struggles of you know trying to make it, um, you know, financially, and it's. You know, it's not an easy thing no. you know, to be a, a full-time nature photographer, um, but you studied ecology, is that right? Yes, yeah, it? that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, with a sciences background, is that how you got interested in photography or was, were you interested in photography before you did it?
1: Um, I, I was interested in photography before. I actually started studying biology because I wanted to know more about the subjects yeah. that I was uh, photographing. Uh, So it it was the other way around really and uh, my parents always uh, taught me a lot of things about the natural world and we loved going uh, hiking and I remember that my dad always tried to uh, make me remember plant names and things like that. I think that planted the seed and there was always a camera around. Um, I was a single child and I think uh, my parents just loved that uh, mm-hmm. idea of just creating memories for me yeah so we there was always a camera and uh, I' have tons of albums from my past and I think that planted this another seed there too sure. and um, when I discovered photography myself when I was about 20 years old yeah or rediscovered it uh, I was immediately hooked yeah uh, I shot 11 films during a summer holiday to Greece, which
0: is, I think, quite exceptional for somebody who who starts out. That's right. Never mind, you know, back then there would have been, you know, the National Geographic budgets for film. Can you imagine? Yeah. Thousands of roles. Different days. Yeah. But but that's great. I mean, that, um, you know, was that something for you at that time, rediscovering it? Did you know then that you wanted to do this as a living? Or did you just did it happen in that way i think it it happened in that way i I had no clue it
1: it it became uh, a hobby a hobby became a passion yeah um and then when I started studying biology, I had this dream of of becoming uh not David Attenborough but <laughs> somebody like Sir David sure. sitting in a tree, or Jane Goodall, just a classic yeah. uh, uh, wildlife biologist which unfortunately doesn't really exist these days uh, anymore (laughs) because there's a lot of uh, lab oriented research going Mm -hmm. on these days Mm -hmm. Um, but my biology study gave me the opportunity to go to Svalbard um, up in the high arctic for research for three months so i spent three months in the high arctic and i took some images of arctic foxes that uh, i entered in a national photo competition and to my big surprise, they became the overall winner. Great. And I made a clever step of entering them in the professional category. Uh-huh. I was not a professional, I had no publication whatsoever, but no. I thought if I would win, I would benefit way more from winning a professional category than uh, winning an amateur category. Of course. So um, I did, and um, all of a sudden in the Dutch media, I was a professional photographer, and that's, when I started wearing that
0: cap and I never took it off. <laughs> that's so good, it's such a, it's a nice story as well to hear you talk about taking risks, you know, like you did with with the Storks, you know, booking that hotel for two weeks, taking these, you know, helico- I don't know, was it a helicopter or plane, yeah, a plane you helicopter, went in, a helicopter, yeah. you know, these, these are big risks, aren't they? Yeah, and I know, yeah. And I think that's such a good, I mean, you know, a lot of young people listen to these podcasts and I think it's in- inspiring that you do you do have to do it, you do have I
1: to be brave. It. I believe it's the only way to do it. If you if you would do something that's uh, without any risk and you know the outcome already, if the outcome isn't really great or exceptional or different, yeah. then you're not gonna rise to the top. So if you want to do something crazy or, or have to take a risk in order to do something extraordinary, I think you have to take that risk unless you know you go Bankrupt straight away, or uh, you lose your life straight away. Of course, Um, I'm not a daredevil uh, by far, but uh, I think a risk every now and then, because you believe in it. I think that's key. You need to do something because you actually believe it's possible. Yes, and um, then sometimes it's it's good to take a risk. Yeah, definitely. And and I still do that, and so far it has paid off. And of course, I've (laughs) I've made mistakes too. Yeah. Um, that's
0: part of the journey.
1: Yes, you know, for sure. And you only get better because of that. So um, yeah, I would, I would still, if I would have to do things over again, I would probably still do it the same way. Yeah,
0: that's great. And you know, another thing that I'm, I'm interested in is with, you know, nature photography and, and now with, um, you know, the audience that we can all reach through social media, you know, these are huge, Platforms. I was. You yes. know. I, I follow Paul Nicklin and I saw the other day he's got like over four million followers. Yes, it's I mean, insane. It's more than you know some reputable businesses. It's just incredible. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things I think, and this is a, a problem, maybe a, a subject for another debate, is this issue of presenting. You know, this amazing lifestyle, mm-hmm. which of course it is. You know, and and I feel privileged to be able to yeah. do it, and it's a great privilege, but there's also the negative aspect to it and I, I'm also interested in the things that like really piss you off about nature photography yeah. or, you know, thing. All right. maybe you just like one day to work in a bank and everything would be really simple. And
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think if you, that, that's probably also why you don't see uh, many Insta stories being about me as a person mm-hmm. because I, I don't feel heroic. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like, Rambo on the mud flats with mud in my face. <laughs> I'm, I'm still the same me, uh, so I, have, I don't have to make it bigger than it actually is. Um, but yes, we all wake up with. Uh, there, there, there are Always days that you don't want to wake up, or that you make mistakes, or that you drive your car over your tripod. Or <laughs> um, have you done that? Yes, <laughs> I've, I've, I, and and uh, I've terrible memory. Um. I. I always say that it's because I'm so focused but my mm-hmm. friends don't really believe that. So I always need somebody to look after my stuff uh, because I can make you a list of, uh, of a whole A4 size piece of paper with stuff that I've forgotten and fortunately <laughs> I got most things back. But I, yeah, I left um, a $12,000 uh, kit in the train and I forgot my laptop and my <laughs> iPad during the same flight. Um, I lost my passport. All these things, just because I was so focused on something else that I was sure. doing and not paying attention to to these little details, um, those are not things that I usually share. Uh, like I don't share the the, the heroic <laughs> the heroic things that I could share, just because I feel they they take away attention from what you actually want to talk about. Yeah. And I try to use social media in a way that it gives a platform for my subject, not for myself per se, but I do also see how uh, the self-centered focus can actually uh, create attention or create a
0: platform yeah. for your subject, but it's just not my natural way of yeah. doing it. Yeah, I mean your natural way, it's, you know, it's, it's written quite clearly on, on your website that you want to give this, and you've said it earlier today, you know, this voice to the animals or a voice, to nature or a subject that you're you're photographing. And I'm interested in like what you're looking for, you know, when you say that and how you can achieve that with images. Mm. Um, Well, a lot of
1: like the the discussions that we're having on this planet are about big themes and um, a theme like climate change is very abstract and um, I think if you're able to talk about personal, um, how climate change is influencing somebody's life, and you're able to give that person a personal voice uh, on a big platform, that that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm referring to, yeah. and now I'm talking about a person, but the same thing about an animal. Um, I try to Um, put the subject in its context and by doing so I think uh, in the narratives that I try to create I'm able to um, tell something about how climate change or any uh, big theme is having an impact on a person or on an animal's life and and shine a, a little light on uh, people who deserve attention or mm-hmm. animals that deserve attention mm-hmm. because they're often overlooked in, the, in this big uh, theme uh, yes. discussion that we, that we have. Yeah, of course. And it, it, it helps people to understand what climate change actually is or what a garbage problem actually involves. Um, and while the debates that we're having in, in politics these days are getting more and more polarized. I think that providing that personal voice and showing that not everything is black and white, um, you actually create an opportunity for people to have a, a proper discussion yes. uh, instead of being opposed to each other. Yeah. So I, I hope my photography is doing that. Um, and so it's, it's a more personal focus. Uh, I've, I've done a story about a, a flamingo uh, called yeah. Bob uh, and you, you you talk about things like uh, plastic. You talk about the relationship that we have with animals. So it's it's focusing on the human uh, wildlife relationship. It's touching all these subjects, but it's giving a voice to um, somebody who is taking care of a flamingo and how the flamingo is being a wildlife ambassador, teaching yes. children. So it, that's what I mean with giving a voice to. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I've I mean I've seen these pictures and. Anybody following Jasper who's used on Instagram would see this story, and this is also what's been successful in this year's competition, yes. which is magnificent. And the pictures, and what's also lovely about them is this you know, there is this humor element to them. You know, you see a flamingo walking around a classroom or, you know, um, lying down, you know, having a rest, and there's this, and I think that's part of the story is that how can we connect? With an animal like this, rather than just you know you seeing images of it beautifully shot in in nature, that there is this other story to it.
1: Yeah, that, and I think the um, the the story. I'm, I'm if you look at the stork story, um, being uh, where actually I'm, I'm not talking about uh, storks. It's not the natural history story about storks. Uh, in the end, it became a story where I focused on. Uh, a plastic and garbage problem, yeah, where I use the stork being seen as a symbol of new life, um, foraging on these landfills uh, on the excretions of human society. So I work with the contrast of of having a symbol of new life, the stork, and he's the main character of mm-hmm. my movie, if you would call it. Um, so I, I use the stork as an actor in that bigger theme story. Yeah. Uh, It's not a story about the natural history of storks, and it's the same with the flamingo. It's not a story about flamingos, but it's a story about um, how people dedicate their lives in order to take care of animals and um, trying to do something good with the fact that this animal cannot be reintroduced back into the wild, which is unfortunate, but still there's a there's a purpose, yeah, uh, for the greater good.
0: Yeah, and that animal has a purpose, yes. as well.
1: And I don't know if he's aware of that, <laughs> and if that, if that's if that's important. But um, I, I, it, I, I don't provide any answers anymore these days. I try I try to in the past, but now uh, I would rather put questions on the table and. Um, my cousin, she's a veterinarian, and I've asked her the question about a veterinarian being a luxury item. Mm-hmm. Having a veterinarian taking care of your dog or cat, it's all, it's there because of our consumer society, and is that a good or a bad thing, I sure. don't know, but I think I think these things are very interesting to look
0: at it from did, that perspective. Did she have an answer for you?
1: Uh, no, because there is no answer, <laughs> yeah. but there, there are uh, different shades of grey, yeah. and uh because we both accept that they are there, you can actually have a proper conversation yeah. about it and and come to an agreement where you are both satisfied. Yeah. Um, and I think that with most of the stories that I do these days, it is it is like that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, I find that fascinating, hearing you talk about that as a photographer, that you have to be inherently involved in your subject, an expert in that subject. You know, you do lots of research, you put in lots of time, but doing that and being able to take yourself out and your judgments and your opinions and just present it to an audience, you know, seems to me like a, a very mature way of, you know, rather than wagging your finger about plastic or, you know, conservation, it's you're, you're there presenting the I, story to, to kind of create a debate. I broke
1: my finger a couple of times while <laughs> wagging it, uh, figuratively speaking, but I um, I learned that's not the way because the only thing that happens if you if you whack your finger, you get a nodding audience right. because they're on the same side sure. or you get um, an, the opposite side break tearing sure. you down mm-hmm. and it, it never really comes to a, a proper conversation or a, yeah. a healthy debate. So um, that's why I I came up with another approach and yeah. it was quite yeah. deliberately because I wasn't, getting very happy with the finger-whacking.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So now it's providing insights for people to have discussions about. And it was actually funny, the story about the monkeys that got awarded in Wild Press earlier this year. I showed some images on my phone to, uh, uh, at at the barber shop, while the barber was doing my hair. (laughs) Because he hears all these stories about my travels all the time. So I showed him some pictures about uh, what I had been doing and um, he took my phone and he showed it to other people in the barbershop. And before I knew it, there was a whole discussion about human-animal relationships in general, not um, offending anything that was happening in Japan that I documented, yeah. but just looking at their own lives, uh, a very self-reflective discussion that was going on between four or five uh, people while I was just sitting there getting a haircut. And yeah. I think that's the power of what I, I, I do today, is I provide uh, material for people to discuss about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I
1: and having that's... these discussions is important, I think.
0: Without a doubt, that's great. A really, a really nice approach. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, I, you know, I present these podcasts um, for you know guests and and people that are listening to it and actually secretly I'm you know getting all this brilliant information <laughs> for <from> myself <laughs> that I can apply to my own yes, style sure. of photography please but do so yeah it's fascinating um, a couple more things to quickly touch on because yes sure. you've got to iron your shirt um, your role in ILCP which is the International League of conservation photographers yes can you talk or talk to us briefly about this and
1: I don't really have an individual role <laughs> I'm part of the uh, fellows advisory committee but I uh, I just got promoted to a senior level so I guess that means I'm getting old <laughs> um, I don't I don't really have a role maybe I wish I had um,
0: but well, then well, tell us a bit about your your involvement in it and how you joined, when you joined?
1: ILCP is, a, is, is the International League of Conservation Photographers. is a group of photographers that tries to push conservation forward through photography mm-hmm. and um, offers support to NGOs through mm-hmm. photography. Um, it, I think it's a great initiative, and I became a member in two thousand. Nine, I think something like that, or maybe later. Um, I'd heard of it in 2007 or 8. I didn't think I was ready for it because there were big names sure. involved, uh, like Paul Nicklin, who you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, and uh, Joel Sartori. And um, I, I, I wasn't ready for that. And some years later, when I felt I was ready for stepping into that world, um, they had no openings, so I had to wait for quite a while. Right. Um, the organization is is based in in uh, in the U.S. In, in Washington, and in the past they um, have done some some big projects that have uh, avoided uh, oil pipelines being sure. built and things like that. So they had a very good reputation. Um, then when Christina Mittelmeier left, who is the was the president of the international league of conservation photographers um we uh, got into a very rough period yeah and um we're now trying to climb out of that which is great and i've been um trying to how do you say that, to keep beating the drum yeah. uh, on how, to, how I think uh, the organization can move forward
0: yeah.
1: and how we can find the budgets outside of our bubble because that, I think that's key. Um, we all, including the International League of Conservation Photographers for the past years, we have been beating the drum uh, within our own bubble, right. uh, the green world who is already uh, environment focused. And, yeah. Uh, a wildlife photographer of the year event like we're having this week, a wild screen, it's all inner circle yeah. communication. It's a bit like more. you talking about your presentation and you know, preaching to the converted. Yes, and I think that preaching to the choir thing uh, has frustrated me over the years because it, it has no effect. Sure. And uh, I believe you have to step outside of that, and there's tons of budget, there are uh, people who are unfamiliar with. Uh, the work we're doing, but are interested, sure. uh, also interested in funding. So I think that's where our uh, field of work should be, both as an individual photographer as, as well as uh, for the International League of Conservation Photographers. But that implies that you have to move into different environments, yes. which is sometimes uncomfortable and yes. you're unfamiliar with that. So that's a challenge yeah, often, of course. and it's it's about stepping out of outside that comfort zone and presenting yourself in a professional way um, that you are. And um, I think that that's a transition that ILCP is now going through yeah. as they realize that they they have to step outside because that's where you have to make the difference.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it's good that you described it early on of you know, having results. You know, and this is something that. I'm always interested in, because I know that the word conservation photographer gets bandied around yes. a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's about what you do with the work. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, you mentioned about kind of creating a movie with your stalks, and I was interested in you actually creating movies. <laughs> no, how- there, was, <laughs> <laughs> there was,
1: how do you say that in English? Hypothetically. You know, hypo, 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 <laughs> Hypothetically. Yes, that,
0: uh, speaking, yes. Um, Have you dabbled in, in video? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Um, I remember. I think it was 2009 that um, I was part of a team of photographers, and they said, "Well, still photography is going to die, yes. and video is I've going to that. be it." And I wouldn't believe it, and I still don't believe it because my it, my trigger inside my body, my physical trigger, is stills. It's the, the moments that you capture, yes. and and um, they last. For, for as long as the picture exists. While um, video is a different language, it's, it's, it's sequences. And um, if you think of the word threshold, um, there's no threshold at all uh, with photography. If I would walk into a door with holding a picture, your eyes can't resist looking at the picture <laughs> and immediately I confront you with the thing I want to
0: mm.
1: talk about. A video, I would have to... I would have to tell you please look at this video and you would have to make time to look at the video so it's it's a different approach of and course. i i kind of like the slap in the face look at my picture approach <laughs> um long answer short no i have not looked into video but i do um, and that's why wild screen is so interesting i think they go hand in hand uh, brilliantly yes and they should uh, because they are different languages so they they um tap into your personal emotions in a different way. Um, but uh, I, I'd rather have a friend do it. Uh, <laughs> because if, if I would see a moment, I would still go for the moment instead of thinking, oh, I have to get a sequence from A to B. Sure, yeah, is it a case of stick to what you're good at? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, I'm, probably, I'm probably able to do some decent uh, video, but it's... It takes another uh, mindset, it takes another skill set, it takes another equipment set, of course, It's too far uh, out of my <laughs> comfort zone and i I can't do both and if I have to choose, I would always uh, choose the still frame above yeah.
0: video yeah, that's fascinating um, well yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll we will see in the future. I mean the capability is incredible when you think about the photographers that do do both I know that I've you know it is it is a wrestling match sometimes you're in the field and you think oh, this would look great on video you know this would look great on stills that's for me personally and then you look at people like Tim Lehman for example who um, you know he spoke two years ago at Wildscreen and his presentation is a great mixture and he gets really first class um, video as well so doing both it just I guess it requires much more effort trying to find so. the time
1: but I, if if I look the way I work and how intimate I work with my subject and how involved I am while taking the pictures, I don't think I'm able to step out of that. Uh, Not at this moment, but I'm getting more organized now, so um, (laughs) yeah, maybe in the future, but I I would rather do it with a friend. But the only problem there is the budget. Of course. Um, But other than that, I think it's more fun and um, it's more efficient. We talked about efficiency earlier when we talked about families. it's more efficient to you have two people in one and a half week than trying to cover everything myself yeah, in three weeks time, of
0: course. So yeah that's awesome. My final question is, and the wonder of Google Analytics tells me that I do get a lot of young people listening to these podcasts. Yes. So I'm always curious, you know, to see, to to ask the established photographers, you know, if Ooh. they could offer some advice. Advice, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, for for someone who's, you know, interested in nature photography, I think it's got it gets more and more competitive. It seems every year. Yes. Um. You know, what advice would you give a young person who oh. would who would want to be a, a you know a, a, another Jasper Duest?
1: Um, <laughs> no, you don't want that. <laughs> uh, the thing that pops in my mind as you were speaking after judging wild screen and Wildlife Talk of the Year and seeing tons of portfolios of young aspiring talents work with an editor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: let somebody outside of your photography bubble look at your work who is a trained professional um, in telling stories with images because mm-hmm. it makes all the difference and i um When I look at the portfolios, um, I notice that people have difficulties building portfolios, telling uh, stories through a narrative in 15 frames or so. Mm. I do it every day, uh, just playing around, just with image sets, and I I really enjoy it. It's like doing your Sudoku puzzle, but then (laughs) uh, with images. But what really made the difference for me is working with a professional editor and um, just a matter of approaching them. There are editors around at the Wild Screen Festival. Yeah. they are editors during Wildlife Photography of the Year now. Just ask five minutes of their time. Mm-hmm. And as you build a relationship, you might get more than five minutes. Um, if you don't dare to do so, contact an editor just in your hometown or in your own country. Yeah. Uh, I think that would help a lot of young professionals to really focus on the stories that they have in their hands, but don't know how to mold them into that that 10 picture story that might eventually make it to the magazine or a competition like this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you're open to professional feedback, it's just gonna improve your photography. I think in
1: general, yeah. and, And if you get feedback and it's not what you hoped for, don't start fighting it, but think, or accept it and then, Trying to find the value of it, uh, because these people have been doing it for years, um, so you can expect that they know
0: what they're talking about. Yes, but that's really great, and thank you so much for your time. It's well, thank been you. A real pleasure meeting you and grabbing you in your busy schedule. Well, likewise, to, um, it was.
1: It was a nice moment of relaxation and (laughs) not thinking about presentations and a busy schedule.
0: (laughs) That's great, and good luck in your presentation. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you again in Wildlife Talk of the Year and at Wild Screen, and maybe we'll do it again. Um, We'll get you back for part two. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Big thanks to Jasper, who had just flown into London and had a busy schedule, so really appreciate him giving up his time, and that was great fun insightful and fascinating to learn more about Jasper and his approach to photography and I love his style of reaching people by focusing on people and their connection and relationships with animals. I also think his style of presenting the story by engaging with an audience and creating a debate is much more likely to result in positive change rather than lecturing or wagging the finger. So to find out more about Jasper, you can visit his website, which is www.jasperdoest.com. That's J-A-S-P-E-R-D-O-E-S-T.com. And on Instagram, it's at JasperDoost. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and others, I'd really appreciate it if you could spread the word, leave a review on iTunes. It helps us to reach a wider audience um, and people who are not necessarily familiar to the nature photography world. So that can only be a good thing. If you're in the London area and want to come on a photography workshop with me on Hampstead Heath, you can visit the workshops page on my website. 2018 is now sold out, but I did just publish a whole new list of dates for the 2019-2020 season. To see up-to-date stories and other work, check out at Matt Moran Photo on Instagram and Twitter and forward slash Matthew Moran Photography on Facebook. And that's it. The next podcast will be released this time next month. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.